Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Trey Ferguson. Trey is a minister, writer, speaker, and author of the recently released book, Theologizing Bigger, Homilies on Living Freely and Loving Holy. You can get connected with Trey and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, the easiest way to support the podcast is if you gave it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, it would make my day if you would support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with great rewards, including papers I write and even being listed as a producer. Please enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, we've got Trey Ferguson with us. And Trey, you're a minister, you're a writer, you're a speaker. Uh, you also have an MDiv. Shout out to all the people out there with an MDiv. I got one as well. Staying strong yeah, with MDivs in the world, getting mastered by the divine, right? There we go. Get a master that's by how, the that, divine. That's like how it is. Uh, I feel less of uh, I'm mastering divinity and more so that I'm being mastered by divinity, by divinity. Um, at least yeah. when I was doing my MDiv. So, uh, but Trey, you do lots of cool things in the world. Uh, we connected on Twitter probably a few years ago now, and it's been really cool to kind of be like a mutual with you for a while. Uh, but, uh, yeah, with all of that said, who is Trey Ferguson to Trey Ferguson? I'm just a dude, man. Like, uh, that's, that's what it is. I'm, I'm just a guy who fortunately enough, I've, I've come to appreciate and enjoy uh, my own presence. Right. And so I don't, really even like all the stuff you you just read from a bio was stuff that other people asked me and i was like well i guess if i had to right. describe myself to somebody else that would be it but for me i'm, I'm a guy who like, i look at stuff i think things try to put words to those thoughts and uh, i reflect mm-hmm. on them a whole bunch and a lot of them make me laugh you know um so <laughs> I'm, I'm just i'm just a guy I'm not, I'm not that impressed with myself or anything of the sort but i, I feel like I, I keep uh my own company well you know and then right. i guess it's folding other things like being a, a husband and a father and all those other things. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was just a dude before any of those things, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And those well, things, I mean, made me- Oh, I was just going to say, like, speaking of being a father, I know that those kids, those are going to be like professional athletes someday that you've got some pretty impressive kids, don't you? Yeah, they, they, they doing okay. You know, they're doing a little, uh, AAU circuit right now, all American junior Olympian type things. And, um, is, is, it's pretty annoying, man. It's pretty annoying because, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just so much traveling and none of it's free. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I don't get, I don't get paid for none of that travel. So it's all right. good. Like we do all of these things that annoy me for a few moments of glory where they get to stand on the podium and, and hold stuff up right. and maybe get interviewed. And, and, and that's cool. But uh, part of just being a dude is being allowed to say stuff like that. Like, yeah, my kids are dope, but uh, some of the stuff is annoying. <laughs> I love absolutely it I love it. I, well I'm uh great. one of the things that you've recently done is you've written an incredible book called theologizing bigger homilies on living freely and loving holy uh incredible book uh, it sort of really captures i think a lot of the ways that you think and, wow. I, and I really loved it so uh let's chat let's chat a little bit more about the book uh, before we kind of dive into the contents of the book i'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of some of the research that went into the book i would imagine you know a lot of this is a little memoir you're talking a little bit about your story, but you're also talking yeah. a little bit about how you think through things theologically, how you think through the Bible, those sorts of things. Uh, was there any research in this book that came up where you're like, 
wow, I didn't know that before. Maybe it was something about theology. Maybe it was something about history. Maybe it was something about the Bible. Was there anything that came up as you were researching for the book that you didn't know before? I want to be honest, for the most part, n- not really like in that sense, because um, okay, I, I deliberately wrote a book. Like if you notice, it's, it's not a lot of citations and footnotes in there. Um, right. Because I, it's definitely not an like, academic book, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one of my goals was to put the cookies on, on, a, on an accessible shelf, you know. And so right. a lot of it is me wrestling with things that like, OK, I'll put it to you like this. Somebody once asked me who's my ideal audience? Who did I write this book for? And the answer to that question is a younger me, right? Me that's wrestling mm. with some of these things. And in that regard, like I wanted to be able to answer some of the questions I had. And at the end of the day, a lot of those questions weren't really about the things that needed like deep research. It was about, okay, these are the, this is not making sense to me on this level. And so a lot of times it was just me pulling on questions I've had and how I've reasoned through those things. Now, does that mean that I didn't learn anything in the process? Nah, but it wasn't like a groundbreaking. Like, wow, I had no idea. Um, mm-hmm. That moment didn't happen. There were some moments where I was pulling on certain themes that crystallized other other things that I hadn't really thought about. Like at one point, there is the comparison that I draw between Martin Luther King Jr. and Jerry Falwell Sr., right? And mm-hmm. how they were actually contemporaries and so many of the similarities, them being Southern ministers and Baptist traditions, and how that didn't really impact the way they showed up in the world at all and, and the different mm-hmm. things that that impact that. Um, so there was a degree to which me putting these thoughts and, and these uh, reasonings on paper brought some things in the clearer view for me. And if anything, say I was more aware of certain dissonances that existed in, in the mm-hmm. process of writing this. Did I answer the question? Oh. Ah, absolutely. Was there anything that came up writing this first book that uh, you, about yourself where you're like, wow, I didn't know that I had that in me? Or you know, was there anything that kind of came up in that process? You know, obviously, again, you're talking a little bit about some of these stories. Maybe there was a story that came up where you're like, wow, I didn't realize like how hard it was to actually write about that story because I didn't realize like how much that story impacted me. Or yeah, maybe there was something that came up where you're like, I didn't know I had this in me to write this, you know, 50,000 word book or whatever it was. Like, what was there anything that came up where you learned something about yourself uh, as you were writing the book? Yeah, I harbored a lot of doubts about my ability to write a book at all <laughs> uh, for the simple fact that you know, uh, what put me on a lot of people's radar was was Twitter. I'm never calling it X, by the way. Uh, what put me, me on, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> what put me on a lot of people's radar was was Twitter. And um, as a lot of that was me just just saying stuff, right, like joking around, right. just the whole idea. People were like, oh, you should write a book. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really think I should. And then when it came to me running a, a newsletter or blog, whatever you call it, Substack's really just the blog that emails people. Um, and when it came to that, I was like, okay, so maybe there's something to work with here. But as it came, when it came time for me to take this concept of wrestling with faith and then turn it into a book, what really stood out to me was how much of this is a personal matter, right? And so, mm-hmm. like you had mentioned, that it's in effect like kind of memoir. And originally, that wasn't even the intention, but how I communicate is intrinsically tied to who I am. Right. Right. Totally. Um, and so as I got more comfortable in the process of folding that in there and how like these experiences, like when we talk about the name of God, I mentioned how like I was named and there's an actual story behind that. Uh, little things like that. Let me know that understanding ourselves helps us to understand God. Right. And mm-hmm. how we conceptualize and understand God. Um, mm-hmm. So that was dope in, in the sense that a lot of this was necessary for me to i don't want to say grow stronger in a faith in the sense that like i hadn't like 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 i, I was in a bad place before i wrote right. this but like it helped me to name a lot of things and, and to shore up a whole lot of things to like oh snap no like th- this is real like you're not imagining this you're, you're no longer a dude who just says stuff uh you're you're a guy who right. says stuff that can be reasoned through you know mm-hmm mm-hmm you begin the book talking about you being a theologizer. Can you talk more a yeah. little bit about why you think it's important that all people to some degree theologize? You, you have like a little section in there where you talk a little bit about how everyone, regardless of, you know, what whatever, what religion they might be or no religion or whatever, but everybody to some degree theologizes. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important to kind of think about theologizing in that way? Most definitely. I think the key thing to wrestle with here is the role that imagination is playing in all of this. 
And mm-hmm. sometimes we struggle with that word imaginary and imagination because um, it sounds childish, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but at the end of the day, we are talking about invisible beings and forces and deities, like things that even according to the Bible, nobody's ever seen when we talk about God. And so when it comes to a, the divine or something supernatural, something outside the realm of our senses, it's going to involve taking our imagination and constructing what that is. Now, when two people get together and agree on some of what that imaginary construct looks like, that's the beginning of a religion that is ascribing right. importance to something, right? And whether or not you ascribe that level of importance to the Christian God or whether it's it's a Confucian mode of, of, of being or whether it's the fact that there is nothing outside of us and these are the morals that guide us, We're, we are assigning a level of importance to our imagination. So when I say like theologizing is an active pursuit and everybody's doing it in some regard, like, no, we, we have to come to some agreements about what is and what is not. Like that's mm-hmm. the work of, of not just philosophy, not just theology, but how do we structure ourselves as a society? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I often think about the, the, that last point you just mentioned. I often think about the fact that, you know, whether it's like a government policy or the way that we just live in the world, but everything to some degree is so, some sort of theological statement. Uh, you yes. know, I remember thinking years ago, and I don't remember when it was, uh, I, th- I think it was during like the Trump era, but there was there was some sort of like budget that came out about like how it increased so much in like military spending or something. And I remember thinking to myself, th- this increase in military spending is a theological statement about what whoever was in charge of that what they believe about God. Right. And so, you know, regardless of it, whether it's a government policy, whether it's uh, how you interact with your kids, whatever it might be in the world, uh, to some degree, everything that we do and say and believe is some sort of theological statement Um, even for people that might not even believe in God. Right. And I think that's important. That's, that's something that I think is even supported by like the, the biblical story, right? Like if you look at the prolegomena, right? The beginning of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God mm-hmm. and the word was deity or whatever. That idea that, that logos is borrowing from Greek philosophy. It's the this principle of divine reason. It's the thing that orders us. And right there, mm-hmm. the author is saying that like what whatever that is to you is God. Like that, mm-hmm. that whatever, how we structure this, this principle of divine reason. And at the end of the day, even if we do not pro- profess an actual deity or we don't we can't name a theology or a faith system that we ascribe to the way that we believe the world should be ordered is a statement about like what we call god that that is Mm -hmm. what we're doing in essence right and so what john does he says like whatever that statement is this divine reason becomes flesh it becomes a person that we can witness and that dwells among us that that's how john launches like that's the christmas story that john gives the the origins Mm -hmm. of jesus are in divine reason so yeah i think you're absolutely right when you talk about defense uh spending and stuff like that being theological statements if we tie theology or an idea of god to the logos, this this principle of divine reason, we would track it right along there. Mm-hmm. That that sort of gets to my next question, where sometimes I hear people discredit theology and doing theology as something that's like just too abstract and it's not concrete, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes you hear people like, I don't need to think about theology. It's too abstract. That's too concrete. Like I, w- I want to hear like what actually is going to matter in my life or whatever. Uh, but clearly you're making some sort of claim here that theology still matters regardless. Uh, you know, it's theology still has impact of what, you know, what has impact in our lives, but the, yeah. the act of doing theology still matters. So can you talk about why you think theology and theologizing still matters and is still worth doing, even though it sometimes does get a little heady and a little abstract? Yeah. So I'm, I'm almost divided on this because to, one extent, right? Like one of the reasons I write this book is because I've been to seminary and I sat through all the heady stuff and I'm also involved in local church ministry, right? There's this divide that happens when we go and we get all these things. And some people are trying to figure out what do I do with all of this stuff? Like, I can't take all of this back to my church. What, what do I do with it? And some people right. leave local church ministry or they compartmentalize and put this stuff away when they go back there. And what I wanted to do was kind of bridge that gap. Because for me, like you said, um, this stuff still matters to the same extent that, okay, smoking is bad, right? 
I don't need to be a scientist to know that, but some scientists actually did the work of explaining why smoking is bad right. for you. Right. And in the same way, the work of theology, right? Like theologizing, as I call it, is important because as we're sitting here trying to like unearth what it means to to live with other people, right? And and to be good neighbors and things like that, theology is a large part of the mechanism that we use, as I said, like in terms of structure in societies. Mm-hmm. And so there are people who believe that uh, philosophy is the way to get there. Like, you know, we got Kant and, and Hegel, all, all of these different ways of being, but that is part and parcel with theology. Like throughout history, theology has been central to a lot of the arts and sciences. Um, and it's not to say it's inseparable because obviously we've gotten to a point where people can kind of draw lines, but in my opinion, that doesn't mean that we toss the whole like practice away or of well, doing this. Right, it's right. important to wrestle with the thoughts that we're thinking about God and about the world and God's interaction in the world. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of like I, when I was doing my MDiv, I had a whole class on James Cone. And, you know, sometimes we think of like black liberation theology as this kind of theology that is very active in the world. And, and it certainly is. But also, if you read someone like Cone, you also he- you hear and see the sort of philosophical, systematic approach that he's taking. Like he thinks through this theology from that lens. And so he's not trying to abandon the abstract part of theology, but he also recognizes the fact that theology uh, is clearly lived out as well. And so I, I really want- appreciate when people don't try to like compartmentalize or bifurcate theology from like the lived part of it to the abstract part of it. Uh, I, I really appreciate when people are able to hold both of those things together when they do theology. Yeah, for sure. Cause at the end of the day, I don't enjoy the prospect. Like part of me loves the academic pursuit of theology and everything. And then right. part of me kind of winces at it because uh, there's some people who get so deep into the weeds that we're, at that point, no good to anybody else, which is fine. There actually is like room for that. I've been greatly helped by by scholars who don't do nothing but scholarship. But at the right. end of the day, like you ask who I am to me, like I'm just a dude. Like, I can't be shut off like that. I'm I'm I'm, I'm for the people. Even like I'm, I'm a right. bit of an introvert, but at the same time, like, just my my entire disposition is like, oh, what what can I do to help you? Like live into the best way that you can live right now and sometimes it's a little harder to do that when we're only focused on on chasing the the academic pursuit of that and so yeah a lot a large part of my belief is okay so what like why do we care and even when it comes to ministry like local church ministry like my one of my primary jobs is as a homiletician as a preacher or whatever to take this ancient collection of of text written in languages that nobody speaks today, right? Like mm-hmm. all, all dead languages in there and answer this question, who cares? Mm-hmm. And just in the same way, when it comes to the work of theology, like, okay, we've done all this thinking about God, we've done the historical work and like, who cares? That's the job of, of a minister. That's the job of a teacher. That's, that's like, who cares with all of this mm-hmm. stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You start the main part of the book talking about the Bible, uh, and you were just mentioning you know, uh, the different collections of books uh, that were written in languages that nobody speaks anymore. How did you yeah. grow up understanding the Bible, and how do you understand the Bible now? Because it does seem like when you were talking about this that there's a journey, and it certainly doesn't seem like you understand the Bible the same way as you did when you were younger. Yeah, most definitely. And some of that is because there's a degree to which when children are encountering literature, we're not thinking of genre and, and stuff like that. Like children's right. books are written in a very specific way. And the Bible is presented to go along with that understanding. The problem becomes as we grow older and understand more about genre, we don't do so much about completing our understanding of the Bible as a collection of books. It's still presented to us as a book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how, how we understood it back when we were five, six years old. And we get the little memory verses and stuff like that in Sunday school. You know what I'm saying? Um, we, we have these stories that, that we inherit. But even going through the, the works, we come up with these systems to try to reconcile that view of Scripture with what Scripture actually is, when no, Scripture is is... It's it's basically a library. We we bind these these libraries up and we carry them around with us to church now. And that's something that's only happened for the past what four or five centuries. But yeah, I definitely went on a journey where like 
I, I understood the Bible as a book. It's a book about God, and we come up with catch little slogans, particularly in more conservative evangelical traditions, where we say that this is God's love letter to us. And no, at, at mm-hmm. the end of the day, it's it's it's, it's not really like that's a, that's a faith statement. But there's so much going on in there, right? We have. Right stories that explain origins. We have collections of hymns and poems. We have uh, philosophical works that are wrestling with, is God really with us? We have stories that help explain how the monarchy came into being. Then we have these New Testament scriptures where somebody takes some of these old stories as, okay, Jesus enters right here and then explains these stories this way, the whole story of Israel in this way. And then just the very nature, when we think of the Bible as a book, we read a book in order. So we think Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then some uh, Acts and then some epistles. We're not even thinking about the fact that those epistles were actually written before the gospel accounts. Right. Like, what does this say? And so it's one of those things, the more you know, the more things come into focus. But we don't often put a lot of importance on like knowing more about the Bible. We just know that it is a book. It's that love letter. Right. What's up, a People's Theology listeners? I would love for you to support the podcast. There are a few ways you can do that. First, sharing the podcast to others who you think would also enjoy it and find it helpful is a great way to support the podcast. It's like evangelism, but for something actually good. I really think the ideas explored on this podcast matter, and I believe they are worth sharing with others. Second, if you're not totally depraved and use Apple Podcasts like me, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. It might not seem like much, but every rating and review helps the podcast tremendously in a world more predestined by algorithms than by God. Third, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. It's like tithing, but for something actually good. This podcast takes a lot of time and energy to make, so supporting my work through Patreon is a great way to make sure this podcast can continue to be made. With all that said, please enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. You talking about, like, obviously there's different genres. You talking about how there's theological agendas that each of these authors have. Uh, yeah. You talking about the, even the times and dates that some of these books were written in. All, learning all of that in seminary made me love the Bible more. And I yes. find it interesting that for a lot of people when uh, that may have grown up, maybe like kind of more of a fundamentalist person, uh, thinking about the Bible in that way, a lot of times when people start to encounter the fact that there's like all this context to the Bible, a lot of those people start to like think to themselves, actually, I don't really know if I believe any of this anymore. Mm -hmm. And they may ultimately leave Christianity. But whereas there are some of us where we actually fall in love with the Bible even more when we find that out. And I find that interesting that you're still learning, regardless of if you're the person that leaves Christianity because of all this, or you fall in love with it even more. It's funny because like you're learning the same thing, but there's two very different kind of responses to it. Uh, I don't know if that's something that you encountered where you fell in love with the Bible even more as you learned more of these things. But it is interesting that, uh, you know, it it very well could be that somebody learns the same same kind of things about the Bible and they might actually want to leave Christianity altogether. Yeah. And I think that's a disservice that 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 we as ministers of the gospel do to people when we say that oh this is what the bible is in the moment that any of these things come into question all everything falls apart like no we literally made that up that that's no you can't even find such a construct in the bible or the historic christian faith for the most part that's a relatively recent idea and there are certain points like when you talk about this making you fall in love with the bible more like i don't know when this episode is coming out we're recording it a couple weeks before christmas right and we look first and foremost out of the four gospel accounts, only two of them recount a birth narrative at all. Mm-hmm. The idea that Jesus has an origin. And they don't say the same thing. They right. don't, right? Like even when it comes to the Annunciation and one of them, the angel comes to Mary, another one, it comes to Joseph. Like there's different lines right there. The, the, the genealogies don't match up perfectly and everything. And for me, that's exciting. That makes it more realistic because can you think of a time when you were in a gathering where somebody told a story and someone was like, no, that's not how it went. It went like this, you know, and right. this thing happens and it's based in truth, but different people have different recollections. And that makes this more real to me. Like, oh, okay. So at some point there was a baby that was born and some people thought it was special. That's cool. The details, cool. we will never know because the details aren't the point. Right. At the, at the end of the day, what we have to wrestle with is what is the main idea here? Is there a God who loves us? How much? So much that, come and live among us and that's 
the dope part to me. And so when it comes to falling in love with the Bible more, when I'm able to divorce myself from the details and some of the discomforting things, right? Because at the end of the day, if all of this stuff is true, we have some really, really disturbing things we need to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. Well, I shouldn't say if all these things are true. If, if everything happens exactly the way it did because a supernatural being ordered them that way and there are no human fingerprints in the Bible, that, that's what I should say right there. Mm -hmm. Then we have some very disturbing things that we need to wrestle with is what it means right. to, to worship this guy. Mm -hmm. And so when you examine the Bible for what it is, people throughout history wrestling with God's intervention in their lives or where they perceive God in their lives, that kind of gives us permission to do the same thing. Yeah. You're talking about like some of those discrepancies that we see even like in the Gospels. A lot of people, again, like whether it's like a fundamentalist Christian or somebody that is either leaving Christianity or is an atheist, has been an atheist, a lot of times we still think of the Bible as an, all those people think of the Bible as an errant, whether it's a fundamentalist Christian yeah. or like a fundamentalist atheist, right? Yeah. And I, again, I think that does a disservice to the Bible because if you realize that each of these authors have like a different theological agenda that they're trying to get across right? and they're not trying to give some sort of historical inerrant account all the time, but they actually have some sort of theological agenda. And so therefore some of these sort of facts, if you will, are going to be changed a little bit. Uh, I, I think all of that, uh, again, gets me more excited about the Bible. And again, Absolutely. I think it all comes down to the fact that I don't believe the Bible is inerrant. And I think that sets me up for being transformed by the Bible. Whereas you've got some, uh, whether it's a fundamentalist Christian or an atheist that thinks of the Bible as an inerrant or trying to be inerrant. And I don't think it, that it, for each of those kind of people, the fundamentalist atheist or the fundamentalist Christian, they, because they believe that the Bible is trying to be inerrant, it doesn't allow them to be transformed by the Bible. Yeah. And there's the other thing. So a couple of things, like even when we say the word inerrant, not everybody means the same thing when they say those words or, or mm -hmm. thinks that word. Like the idea of inerrancy is outlined in the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy in 1978. That's a relatively recent invention because traditionally when Catholics said it, in inerrancy was closer to what we would now understand as infallibility. When inerrancy came to mean that the Bible had to be historically accurate and truthful in every single claim, like that's a whole that doesn't even make sense. Like within the Bible, if you're looking at it, well, why would we have multiple accounts of the same thing that don't say the same thing exactly if that was the point of the Bible? Mm -hmm. Second of all, the Bible in and of itself literally cannot refer to like the Bible doesn't refer to itself. That's not how libraries work. Right. It's just not like there, there is, it's not a self-referential document. Now, there are scriptures within the Bible that point to other scriptures. Then we have that one line where all scripture is God breathed and useful for training the righteousness. A couple of things about that. Number one, God breathed inspiration is probably talking more about scripture being alive than what we think of God coming and possessing people. Right. Secondly, and writing it like himself or something. Right, right, right. Secondly, when we talk about scripture, like the word scripture and Bible are not interchangeable at all, right? Muslims mm -hmm. have scripture. It's not the Bible. It's called, scripture is a, a collection of texts that a community have ascribed re religious significance to. And so Paul is saying there that like the, the people who like our scriptures, that they, they are inspired by God. That's a faith claim. That's a faith declaration as is the idea that the Bible is somehow inerrant, except that's a faith claim that's not found in the Bible, it's found in tradition. Right. And once we understand that people throughout history have been faithful Christians, have been committed Christians, following after the way of Jesus without making that particular faith statement or making that an essential to their faith, I think we have the liberty to deal with the Bible for what it is and what it presents right. itself as. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In in the second part of the book, you start talking about how you inherited both blackness and Christianity uh, before you even had, obviously, even a choice uh, if whether or not you're going to inherit those. Uh, can you talk about the relationship between race and Christianity and how they've shaped each other over over their history together? And then can you talk about what that relationship means for you personally today? Yeah, definitely. So that is one of those topics that makes a lot of people uncomfortable right like there was mm -hmm. uh i don't i don't know if he's prominent but he, he's known uh lutheran pastor a while ago who uh when i mentioned about the the linkage between whiteness and christianity as we currently conceptualize it in america it's like oh well that's interesting because when i think of 
of Christianity, I think of Augustine and he was African. And I'm like, okay, cool. But we're not talking about the same thing. And you know that the simple fact that Augustine, Augustine, however we're pronouncing that was <laughs> an African in North Africa that came along far before the, our current concept of race, which is really right. a 16th century like invention. Right. And so it's important to wrestle with the fact that like, when we talk about race, we're talking about an arbitrary grouping of ethnicities that did not really come into play until like the age of exploration. So people started going back and forth across the Atlantic ocean in particular, is when we started coming up with these concepts. And when we talk about, like we spoke about religion earlier as a way of structuring societies, these beliefs and Jesus were one of the ways that was communicated. One of the things that differentiated white people or people who became white was belief in Jesus, whether they were Protestants, Catholics, like whatever have you. One of the things that differentiated them from the people they were encountering was this religion that they had, right? And so what we start seeing in America in particular is this linkage with Christianity being for white people, so much so that in certain colonial laws, Christian is almost a synonym for white. Mm -hmm. And a byproduct of that is that as we are like colonizing people, even internally, when it comes to like the, the indigenous peoples of the land and then the African people who were brought over and enslaved, one of the best ways that they had of assimilating into their culture was to become Christian brought up other like problems okay are we still allowed to enslave christians well yes because they're inferior in this way but there's this linkage there between what we think of now as the creeds which ultimately like start expressing themselves just like cultural things um and the fact that these people all came from europe that's not to say that christianity or the, the way of jesus is inherently tied to whiteness but christianity right. as we currently understand it often is there's there's that link there right mm -hmm. and that's tough for me because at the same time we talk about blackness ain't no black person look in the mirror and decide to start calling themselves black like no black is the negative of white like i, I was made black by other people who decided some things and so those are labels that i have inherited and, and i own them i'm, I'm a black man it's the language we have right now i'm a christian because i believe in the story of jesus but that doesn't mean that my expression has to be the same right mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times I will look at the story of Jesus as I received it and as it pertains to my life and experience. And it is at, at odds with some of what people would consider like the mainstream Christian tradition. I don't think it's all the way at odds with all of the historic Christian tradition because I don't think there's a Christianity. I think there are Christianities, right? right. Like plural. And one of the things we got to understand is that if religion is a way of structuring societies and societies have been constructed racially, then yeah, there's going to be a lot of overlap there. That reminds me that you're, you're obviously you're talking about this like origin of race uh, and Christianity's influence on that. And, and you've mentioned construct a few times. And so one of the things that is, I often talk about and have people on the podcast talk about is the social construction of race. And can you talk about how, because race is socially constructed, are, are you one of these people that also believes then that like, because it was constructed, it can also be deconstructed. And I'm, I'm curious, like what your thoughts are around like the, the deconstruction of race and potentially like Christianity's influence or potential influence on that. Yeah, in theory, can absolutely be deconstructed. The problem is, like, okay, so I'm going to sound a bit like a Calvinist right here, though I assure you <laughs> I am not. Right? When we talk about total depravity, right, <laughs> like, it's, it's not just the idea that we individually are totally depraved. It, it's the idea that, like, original sin is so thoroughly, like, invaded the world that the only thing that could save us was Jesus. And in that same way, though race was socially constructed, we've done a very good job of constructing a society around it. Like it is fundamental, particularly in the United States, race is baked into our structures. They did a very good job of not mentioning race or slavery directly in the Constitution, but it's in there. Like it's inevitable mm -hmm. if you read it, talk about persons being owned and stuff like that. And because we are a constitutional society, like 
regardless of what amendments, how, how, how we try to put duct tape on the thing until and unless we're willing to scrap the whole thing and start over without that being central to our understanding of the world, it's going to be there. Mm-hmm. And to that, I say, this is one of the reasons why I am a Christian, because the gospel says that all things are made new in Jesus, that Jesus mm-hmm. was so committed to the wholeness of a people. He was willing to die off in order to set things right. And that God vindicates Jesus, that, that that the way of Jesus is vindicated through the resurrection. And so what that means for me is that if race is to be deconstructed, it requires a total overhaul. It requires a making of all things new. It requires like uh, <laughs> a revelation that, that we would see toward the end where everything is pulled back and it's ugly and there's all sorts of wars and everything because it's not a construct that will go away easily or quietly. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, the deadliest war in the history of the United States of America was fought in part over <laughs> the issue of race and how, uh, what role it was to play in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we understand that, like, yeah, we can do all the education we want. You can read all the Ibram X. Kendi books you want. You can read White Fragility and all that stuff. You can do it. It's cold. It's, it's not going to happen like easily or gradually, if we if we are to deconstruct race and imagine a society where that is not how we bond ourselves, right, um, it's going to require a complete and total overhaul, which I think is in line with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I'm just like absolutely convinced that as much as it's a social construction, uh, because it's so pervasive in the world, uh, it's it's going to take a lot. You know, it, it's been h- hundreds and hundreds of years that race has been constructed and baked into society, especially right. in our society. Uh, just imagine how much longer it's going to take then uh, to undo all of this as well. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah, I think you're totally right that it, it can't be just something that it's just going to be the snap of the fingers and then all of a sudden race doesn't exist anymore and we can sing Kumbaya. I, I don't think that's going to be be the case at all uh it's going to take uh just as long if not longer uh for for it to be deconstructed as long as it's taken to construct it yeah and then the other aspect of that is when you see like okay you look at the <laughs> the magnificat right and all these things mm-hmm. where mary is praying like celebrating the idea that the mighty might be made weak <laughs> and things like that that's an actual consistent theme in the bible now if i say something like that say that god is on the side of the oppressed or whatever people are like oh that's liberation theology or whatever despite right. the fact that it's literally what the bible says right but if there is to be a deconstruction of race it literally has to to require that but that the, the playing fields are smoothed out that people will lose things like you, people will have to let things go, whether that mm-hmm. is privilege, whether that is material possessions, like, that's the only way that goes. And it, it, it'll, yeah. it'll happen easy. P- people might actually have to bear their cross. <laughs> right. Right. Like we, you, you're going to have, you're going to have to be about that stuff you keep on talking about. You know? Right. This episode of a people's theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. You mentioned just a second ago that you sounded a little Calvinist for a second, but in the third part of your book, you sound very Wesleyan, uh, almost (laughs) just the opposite of a Calvinist. Uh, But you talk about the role that experience and tradition play in constructing our understandings of Christianity. You know, a lot of Christians, especially maybe the way both you and I grew up, we thought it's just about the Bible. The Bible is the foundation of Christianity, and that's it. Uh, But you obviously talk about how reason and 
experience play a massive, if not even more critical role than the Bible in our understanding of Christianity. So can you talk a little bit about how reason and experience play in uh, shaping the way we think about Christianity? Yeah, most definitely. I had, um, I think I alluded to it a bit earlier when I say, if we take the concept of inerrancy, which is about the Bible and the way that we understand the Bible, but it's actually not a concept that we find in the Bible. That is a construct that is placed on and handed down and not even in all parts of Christianity. Right. And so that that goes through the tradition part. But some of that tradition is informed by reason because reason told some people that, OK, these people aren't taking the Bible seriously. We need to put this thing back censor. So that's an experiential thing going on. Right. <laughs> uh, so. When we recognize that all of these things are shaping what we view as theology, it kind of liberates us to stop pretending that we need to find the chapter and verse for everything. And no, it's not. I'm I'm not in this. It's just the Bible. Like, no, nobody's doing that. Literally nobody. Nobody's doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Even when it comes to to James Cone doing that type of work, he's very upfront about the fact, like, no, I'm doing this as a black man. And mm-hmm. if God is real to me, then this is who God has to be. When you look at somebody like a Bishop uh, Henry Mills Turner who says that God is a Negro, that throws some people off. But what we're talking about there is not biology, but ontology. We're talking mm-hmm. about what it means to operate that that sphere of, of influence or whatever. And when we recognize that, I think it's actually a disadvantage that white people get to do theology with no adjective. Mm. Um, because if you're a liberation theologian or feminist theologian or a womanist theologian or whatever have you, you are upfront about the fact that your lived experiences is impacting the way that you're doing this. Mm-hmm. But if you're just doing regular theology, then no, I'm not in this. This is just what the Bible is telling me. You're actually missing an opportunity to opportunity to examine how your lived experience is impacting the way you encounter these stories and these scriptures. Yeah. I've got a shirt that says every theology has an adjective. It's a dope shirt. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it goes. But yeah, at the end of the day, if we're honest about ourselves, there there is no objective way of doing this. You don't even find an objective way of doing it in the Bible. That's right. Paul and Peter are sitting there having the disagreements and, and Jesus' body not even cold yet. You understand? Like, right. And, and also the lack of humility to yeah. think that you can do objective theology. And these are typically people who think they're totally depraved, right? It's like, yeah. if you think you're totally depraved, how can you possibly think that you can do theology objectively and as if uh, you're hearing it directly from God and so you, you've got this pure, correct theology? If you think you're also totally depraved, that to me is like the, the dissonance that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's, it's really wild. And the other part about that, right, the inex- what we cannot get around, particularly in an American context where we're dealing with Protestants, people who don't even have like a central ecclesiology to determine these things. The people who get to determine what is normative theology mostly look the same. And And, and so what we end up with is like I spoke when we talked earlier about the link between race and like Christianity, if the only people who get to do this objectively are white dudes, then what do you think the theology is going to point right. to and, and say about? And I think it's important that we reckon with that. Like, oh, all of a sudden a couple of people had questions like, wow, should we be enslaving people who who convert to Christianity? And a bunch of white dudes are like, well, at the end of the day, I guess like, oh, well, curse of ham. Yeah, we can do this. You know, like wait, 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 wait. Did you bring anybody else in the room? No, you didn't even think to. That that sounds objective to you? No, we have to be honest about the fact that we're all bringing presuppositions to the text and that those presuppositions are largely grounded on how we've experienced life. That's not a bad thing to admit. Yeah. Yeah. One of the insidious parts of white supremacy is the fact that it is so deeply contextual to one's perspective, yet it is normalized that that one person's perspective is normalized and universalized as if it's objective uh and everybody yeah. else's is, is subjective and and contextual or whatever right and and that's the insidious or one of the insidious parts of white supremacy is the way that it's able to normalize and, and also universalize one particular experience right and is is really wild because at the end of the day if there is 
a perspective. Like if there if there is one singular perspective we should try to be reading these stories through, in my opinion, it is that of Jesus. Now, of course, right. it's going to require like some leaps of faith and, and, and some trust. But if we look at where Jesus was situated socioeconomically, where he was situated in like, wait, are you sure that this is the best way to do this? Like the, the, what we've determined as the objective and right orthodoxy, does that make the most sense for what the assignment is? I think a lot of people would argue not necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. And that is why a lot of this theology is considered heterodox or unsafe because it's challenging the very claim that this is not just a right way but the right way to approach these these stories right in the last part of the book you talk about how we how we theologize now will shape the future what are some of the core issues that you see in theology right now and what we should be theologizing right now uh and how that might shape the future you know obviously we've been talking quite a bit about race and christianity i would imagine that's like one of the core issues of how we theologize about this now will shape our future uh obviously lots of conversations right now about like queer relationships and theology uh and how that might shape the future but i'm curious kind of what are some of those core theological issues that you're thinking are talked about right now and need to be theologized now and they might shape the future yeah i think for me of course race is one of them but race is just one of the things that impacts me personally right mm-hmm. uh, what we're really dealing with is how we see and understand hierarchies and there's so many of them mm-hmm. we've got patriarchy we have like race all, all these different things these systems of structure and societies when if we are to take the creation accounts of Genesis seriously, hierarchies aren't the thing that come into play until after the fall. And so we got to like think about what that looks like. Now, mm. if you dwell over there too long, people are going to call you a Marxist, but I'm just talking about what Genesis said. The other thing, like for me, one of the projects I've taken on, and I got this idea from a guy named Dr. John Kenny, who's my, my advisor and my mentor in seminary, but it's making my cosmology and my eschatology line up with my ecclesiology and my theology, right? What what do I believe God created the world to be like? What do I believe that the world will be unveiled as in, in, in the final coming? And is that reflected in the way, in the work that I'm doing in the church and in the work I'm doing theologically right now? So that's not only a matter of trying to undo some of these human hierarchies that we've depended on and baptized and sanctified in the name of Jesus, but also, are we taking good enough care of this planet that God charges us to take care of? So I think there's a degree of like eco-theology that, that we got to get serious about when it comes to dealing with climate and stuff like that. And just the, the fact of the matter, natural resources are not infinite. Um, are, are we doing a good job? There are the systems that we've built around ad- advancing uh, this planet right now really doing a good job of stewarding creation mm-hmm. and i think that that's the main thing for me so talk about the faith that shapes tomorrow is that in line with what we believe god had created at the beginning is that in line with what we believe will be unveiled in the last days and are we walking in accordance with those things right now or are we walking in accordance with that which we've received mm. Can you talk more about, you, you mentioned um, one of the things that you've worked on is connecting your cosmology and eschatology and out of that creating this ecclesiology, and especially for you as a minister. I'm curious what that ecclesiology then looks like um, with the way that your cosmology and eschatology look like. How, what, what, what is that um what does your ecclesiology then look like? I'm really curious about this. I I'm a I, I love like ecclesiology kind of uh, conversation, so I'm really curious around yeah. that. Right. So I'm in um, a church right now. I'm in my church office, and I'm I'm the executive pastor here. So we have an org chart, right? And it has the position and what positions report to which positions. We have that because that's what people are used to. When I have leadership meetings or whatever, I'll print out another one. I'll say, okay, this is what we're used to here. This is what I'm looking for. And mm. I I take the org chart and I, it's no longer like the blocks with the lines coming underneath it. It's actually intersecting circles, right? Because mm. at the end of the day, I said, I don't want to be the guy who leads by giving orders. I want to 
collaborate with you. I, I want like break down collaborate it is co-labor. I want to work alongside you guys and not over you. I, I don't want that mm. to be it. Like I want you to understand that you are empowered to make X, Y, Z happen. And um, what that looks like in practice is a work in progress because a lot of times we get stuck on habits that we've received and, and, and things that have been handed down to us. But um, I think a lot of times, like <laughs> if I quote Dr. Kenny again, one of the things that he said is that one of the lies that the serpent gets us to believe is that God is over us when every time in the text until the serpent speaks, God is with us. And so mm-hmm. even how we structure our churches with these, these hierarchies, where there's a pastor and then directors on them and stuff like that, as opposed to a pastor who leads among the people in his life. My my question is typically, okay, if this department, this area, this director has been given a charge, I give him that charge and I say, how can and do I support you in this charge? Mm. I don't need you to run everything by me. I tell people that all the time. I'm like, no. Like, oh, can we do such and such? Like, yeah, I gave that to you. How do you need me? To... Now, of course, there are times when I'm like, oh, like, be- because this department doesn't necessarily know what the finances are like if they have to go outside the budget or whatever i'm like okay that has to come to me and i have to put two people together and sometimes i have to make a decision but at the end of the day if it's within the charge you've already been given like no i don't need to sign off for everything and if we have to clean up on the back end then that's something that we we're going to do together because the expectation for me isn't that we would all do everything as i'm envisioning it it's that we would do everything that we can to make the love of god known in our community. And I don't have exclusive rights to that knowledge, you know? Yeah. I love the way that you've structured organizationally around that, uh, because you obviously have this value of at least attempting to subvert those hierarchies that typically are normative. Uh, what I, I used to be a part of a church, uh, it recently closed, but uh, it was the church that I worked at right, right out of college and was a youth pastor at. But one of the things that uh, we also had that value of trying to subvert these uh, normative hierarchies that we often are given. And one of the things that we did, not just organizationally, we did very similar things organizationally as you're talking about. But one of the things that we d- literally did was redesign the space. So we had this old Methodist church that obviously had these pews in it. Uh, when we bought that church, we tore out all the pews and we put couches in the sort of a circular pattern so that when wherever you sat on these couches, you would be able to see everyone else. And that was sort of, again, not to attempt to like be cool or hip. It was because we have this value of trying to subvert these hierarchies. And this is a way for everyone to realize, oh, we're all participating in this together. And there's no one, uh, n- no one that uh, sits higher, uh, you know, at this than the other. Uh, you know, oftentimes when we have these pews, right, everybody is looking in the same direction yeah. at some person. And that it just by the design of it sets whoever's up, you know, whether it's a pastor or a musician or whoever it is up at the stage uh, or at the altar, sets that person up in a hierarchy that may they yeah. may or may not want, right? And so uh, I, I love the fact that we had these sort of concentric circles of couches because it really, it, it made it a little bit more uh, egalitarian, if you will. It, it yeah. really started to, just from a design perspective, started to subvert some of those hierarchies. Uh, and so, yeah, I love the way that you're talking about some of those, uh, the, the organizational ways that you subvert that. But also, I also think that there's even like design elements to yeah. this uh, of the way that we design physical spaces to subvert some of these things. Yeah, so all, everything is communicating something, whether we want it right. to or not. Right? That's my, my undergraduate background is in communication, and that's why um, a lot of people. It, it's funny uh, on on Twitter because again, I'm never calling it the other thing. Uh, right. People will draw comparisons between you and I sometimes. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Be, like when it comes to how we handle dissent, <laughs> and, yes. and we'll, we'll both laugh our way through a lot of things, and like I'm not right. taking that seriously, or whatever. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, nothing either of us does on there is purely accidental for the most part. A lot of times, like we'll say something anticipating the blowback because something is communicated intentionally. And then um, I think we both get something out of, of, of prompting a little bit of discomfort in people. And one of the reasons I do that is because I believe that all growth happens in discomfort. Mm. Um, So I say all that to say when everything is communicating something, including how we design the space, the dialect that we tend to use the the, the lingua franca of, of a church, you know, um, down mm-hmm. to what translation you're using when you read scriptures mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Everything communicates something, whether we want it to or not, whether we thought through it or not. Um, and the more intentional we can be 
the better equipped will be to make the adjustments necessary. Because we might find out that some of them things don't work the way we wanted them to, but because we realized that we we were doing something that everything is communicating something, we can we can tweak things, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, last couple of questions, Trey. Uh, the tagline of my podcast is uh, exploring, inspiring, and liberating theologies. So, how do you hope that this book inspires and liberates its readers? That's a great question. At the end of the day, you notice I didn't really make any evangelistic appeals in the book because some of that stuff can't really be done remotely. Some of that stuff has to be done in person. But what I wanted to do was provide a companion to people who are wrestling with faith, whether they are in church, trying to stay in church, like like on the way out, whether they're never going back to church again, whether they have disavowed God, but are still curious about the things. I wanted to provide a companion to wrestle with the things that you were either currently wrestling with or have wrestled in the past. Because at the end of the day, one of the reasons why people will leave a community, whether religious or otherwise, is because they feel unseen. They don't feel like they belong. And when you do not feel like you belong, you feel like ostracized, like you don't belong. That's not a liberating feeling. It's not a loving feeling. Love and liberation are inseparable in my estimation. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I hope that this book does is help people feel seen. People who've had questions, people who have had doubts, people who desire uh, to help other people get whole, help themselves get whole, whatever that, whatever that looks like. At the end of the day, I think that salvation is, and the last chapter of my book is called the Rehumanization Project, right? Or is it the second? Mm-hmm. I can't remember the order of the chapters. But the idea here is that Jesus died to bring you back to the state like jesus died in the process of of bringing us back to the state that god created us to be in Mm. and whether or not you do that inside of the church where i exist or on the outskirts of the church or will never come in contact with the church my desire is that you will live in the fullness of who god created and called you to be and Mm. i hope that even if it's just a little bit that this book helps people move in that direction you know that's just such a, like a beautiful way of putting it. And like what, what your desire at least in the book is that's just like, yeah. So incredible. Trey, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work and where should they get the book? Most definitely. You can find me on all the socials at pastor Trey 5. That is at pastor Trey zero five. I'm on Substack as well. Pastor Trey 5.substack.com. You can reach out to me uh, on my website, pastor Trey 5.com in there. Also, um, the Three Black Men podcast with Rob yes. and Sam. Shouts to my brothers. Three Black Men, Theology, Culture, and the World Around Us. I also have the New Living Translation uh, podcast. It's one of the podcasts. Uh, a lot of my projects are designed for people like me with short attention spans. And so I think the longest ever episode of the translation has been maybe 18 minutes. <laughs> we just take a portion of scripture. I break it down and say a quick prayer, and then we out of there. And then, uh, of course, my first book, Theologizing Bigger Homilies on Living Freely and Loving Holy, is available for pre-order right now, releasing on January the 16th. You can buy it wherever books are sold. If you want to support your local bookstore, you can go to bookshop.org. If you want to pre-order that thing, read that thing, leave a review, I greatly appreciate it. Love that. Also, I just got to say the new living translation, is that how you say it? That has got to be one of the best podcast names ever yeah yeah shout out to benjamin young who uh it's funny because i used to tell like bible stories on twitter just in my own just, just talking through it, how i talk he was like man you got to put together a translation and um as we were working with three black men rob was like hey what if we started like doing spinoff podcasts because he wanted to like do his own thing and i was like i don't even know what i would talk about and then i remembered like ben was like what about a translation I said yo i could turn this into a podcast and and yeah that's where we at right now that's awesome. That is sick. I had no idea that exists in the world, but I'm definitely checking that out now. That is awesome. Do that. Yeah. That's great. Awesome. Well, Trey, thank you so much for chatting about the book. I'm just so appreciative of you writing the book. I remember it was like, I felt like a year ago, maybe when you first announced, Hey, I'm going to be writing this book and I want it to be like, you know, all like supported, funded by, by you all, uh, by, by, by your followers. And, and I just remember being like, so, so stoked about it. So it's so cool to see like it happening now. And we're just like a month away from it releasing. And, uh, yes. it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's just so we cool really to see it. that, that whole journey now. And, uh, 100%. I, I 
really said crowdfunding. You talking yeah. more about it. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. I appreciate you having me here, man. We got to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can get connected with Trey and his work in the links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.